0: Well, you can turn to that uh, passage that I read. So that's 1 Samuel, uh, the very last part of of chapter 14, and then we're going through chapter 15. And uh, last week, we started studying this passage, and even as we uh, read it again here today, we can tell that it's no easy section to work through. And last time we noted that there are four particularly difficult elements represented in this section of Scripture that make it hard. So, I'll give them to you here. First of all, there's that nice, clean summary of Saul's kingship there at the end of chapter 14, and that's not easy to sort out because we know from our studies in 1 Samuel so far that Saul's kingship was not exactly positive, Not least of all because of what happens now in chapter 15, he's rejected as king and so on. So that that shiny, we call it a sanitary summary of Saul's uh, kingship is tricky to deal with at the end of chapter 14. And then following that, we have uh, something even harder in what we call the brutal battle directive as we get into chapter 15. So the Lord directs Saul in the annihilation of the Amalekites. Basically, every living thing is to die, and uh, that can immediately affect our sensibilities. So we have to sort through how to properly understand what's going on there. And then following that, we have the fact that we're told in verse 11 of chapter 15 that the Lord regretted making Saul king. And then down in verse 29, Samuel makes the statement using the same Hebrew word again that the Lord doesn't lie or, it's translated here, change his mind, but it's regret. The Lord doesn't lie or regret. So so there's an apparent contradiction to sort out. The Lord regrets, but the Lord doesn't regret. And then finally, we have Saul asking for forgiveness and yet still being rejected by God. So we have to deal with that as well. Uh, later on, King David, he, he's he's going to sin and he's going to ask for forgiveness and he'll be granted pardon. Here Saul sins, asks to be pardoned, and instead of forgiveness, by the time we get halfway through chapter 16, he has an evil spirit. So we have to deal with that. Again, again, again these, these are four very hard elements in this passage. It's one of the trickiest passages in the whole Bible for these reasons. And like we said last week, instead of, instead of breezing through this, uh, we are taking our time to at least uh, try, with God's help, to understand what's going on here. Uh, so last week we talked about that sanitary summary at the end of chapter 14. Uh, and then we also talked about uh, the brutal battle directive in the per- first part of chapter 15. Uh, we covered those two last week. I won't revisit them today. If you, if you missed that and you want to, you can catch up on the study from uh, the sermon posting on the website. Uh, but as for this week, we're going to look at the apparent contradiction between the Lord regretting And the Lord does not regret. That's what we're going to focus on today. Then next week, we'll work through Saul's asking for forgiveness and not receiving it. I I always have the high ambition of fitting both more into a sermon than I can. I couldn't fit both those into this one today. So, we're going to take them in two parts. Uh, Today, we're going to sort out this apparent contradiction. So, uh, this is where we're, we're going to be uh, more strictly, I suppose, theological theological than rigidly expositional. We'll get back to a more expositional approach to this passage next week as we run through what's happening in Saul's own heart and why forgiveness ultimately doesn't come to him. But but we do have these, these statements to deal with within the context of our passage. So, so if you look there, in verse 11 again, we have the Lord regrets. And then Samuel says, the Lord does not Regret, he doesn't change his mind, verse 29. And then in verse 35, the very last thing we read in the passage in chapter 15 is what? The Lord does regret, again. So we have regret, he never regrets, he regrets. So what in the world do we do with this? How do we, how do we sort this out? Uh, we know we need to think well about this with our Bibles open, uh, so, so here we go. That's what we're going to attempt to do. It's a coffee kind of morning, I hope you had yours. Um, we can start by acknowledging that there is an apparent contradiction. And we use the word apparent on purpose because we know that in the perfection of God Himself, there is no such thing as an actual contradiction. Uh, the witness of Scripture is that the God of the Bible is, is absolute in His holy completeness. So, so there is there's nothing contradictory, there's nothing conflicting, there's nothing inconsistent, there's nothing incompatible about the Lord's nature and character. Now, in saying that, we also need to say that the completeness of the nature and character of the personhood of God isn't a perfection, if we can call it that, that we can comprehensively get our minds around. I was on our front porch recently, and there was a a family walking up our, uh, our street, heading up to the Llewellyn Playground with a child who was probably maybe a little bit more than two years old. Uh, but they, they came to the end of our street, and I could kind of see them in the corner up there, and, and just as you'd expect, the child kept walking right out into the road. Um, and, and, of course, the parents exhibited a proper amount of freaking out that the child would just keep walking out into the road. But, but you could tell the kid was totally confused by the bigness of the parent's reaction. It just it blew their mind. Uh, because as far as a two-year-old mind can comprehend, there is nothing that distinguishes the sidewalk from the pavement of, of the street. You've been telling me to walk all this way. I've been walking all this way like you told me to walk. What would stop me from keeping walking? We're walking. That's what we're doing. I'm going to keep doing it. But of course, the parents know there's something that keeps you from walking when you get to that point, and it's cars. That The parents have a mind that comprehends realities completely outside of the child's capacities. So, so while it might seem like a, like a total contradiction to the child to, to stop walking just because you get to the end of the block, the pavement goes on after all, why would we stop here? It seems contradictory to walk and then all of a sudden not walk, but we know that contradiction only exists in their, in their childlike mind because they're a two-year-old. Right? Were where, where, they to have the, the adult capacities or the capacities of a four-year-old even, they would, they would understand and not, and not have that, that trouble with the, with the contradiction. And, and in a sense, that's how it is with God and us. That really is how it is with God and us. We understand some things. In fact, we understand much, much about God. He reveals a great deal to us. But sometimes, when we're applying our minds to truths about God, We get to the end of of a sidewalk like a two-year-old, so to speak. There there can be times when things don't seem to match up, but but, but that's just because we're limited. Um, So so listen to how a theologian, a Dutch theologian from the 19th century by the name of Bovink, listen to how he explains this. He says this, Neither in creation nor in recreation does, does God reveal Himself exhaustively. He cannot fully impart Himself to His creatures. For that to be possible, they themselves would have to be divine. There is therefore no exhaustive knowledge of God. There is no name that makes His essence fully known to us. There is no concept that fully encompasses Him. There is no description that fully defines Him. So so now in saying this, Bavink isn't saying that we can't know God. We can know God. We can know God intimately even. Jesus came and even said in John's Gospel, to see me is to see the Father. We can know God intimately. Um, So so like a two-year-old, if we can use that metaphor, we can can walk down the sidewalk, so to speak, but there is a sense in which we very much reach our limitation. And a passage uh, such as the one we're studying this morning, this particular subject matter, can press on that limitation. God, God is, is intimately knowable. We affirm that from the Scriptures, and at the same time, we also have to recognize that God is infinitely incomprehensible. So these two things are true. And, and the Bible doesn't shy away from making that obvious to us at times. Um, and so we come to our study like, uh, our, a study like this with, with humility. We, we, we know the Scriptures specially reveal the, the personhood of God, And we also know that God is so vast, He's so so transcendent, He's so eternally and categorically and, and fantastically and boundlessly other, that we must differentiate between knowing God and knowing God exhaustively. Which means that in our finite comprehensions, there can be tensions. Tensions, as we'll see, such as an apparent contradiction like we have in our passage. However... Instead of those tensions leaving us further from God, instead, as we press into them, working to know God as best we can by God's help, <coughs> excuse me. instead of being left further from the Lord, we're actually drawn out in worship as we apply ourselves to these things. We're ultimately drawn out in trust because of the grandeur of who He is. So the bigness of God, rather than drive us away from Him, only proves ultimately the godness of who He makes Himself known to be. So, I say all that to set the context where we're coming up against an apparent contradiction. In this passage, we have have an account of Saul disobeying the Lord's directive. So, Saul has been very clearly directed by God to annihilate the Amalekites, and Saul does not obey the Lord's word. And the result, as we read in verse 11 and then in verse 35, the result is that we're told the Lord regrets making Saul king. However... In the midst of Samuel, the, the prophets addressing Saul and telling him that the Lord has rejected him as king, there Samuel also makes this statement, "The eternal one of, of Israel does not lie or change his mind. That's the same word. He does not lie or reg- regret or recant or whatever we put in there. For he is not a man. Uh, he is not like man who regrets. So, so, so we have to work this out. Clearly there's tension here. There's supposed to be tension here. There's meant to be tension here. And, and so this, this passage is given to us ultimately so that we can know God more. So, so we, have to, we have to begin working this out. And the way we begin working this out, which will come as no surprise to you, is we apply, first of all, the main and critical principle of biblical interpretation, which is we always interpret, interpret sacred Scripture with sacred Scripture um it's it's the principle that we must always begin with that's where we start scripture the bible Uh, because it's god's word to us paul tells us how it's breathed out by god he moves through human authors but it's breathed out by god we come to scripture as we come knowing that god who even in this passage we're told cannot lie so the the word is completely truthful and we must interpret what god reveals first of all by what god reveals Basic principle of biblical interpretation, we interpret Scripture with Scripture, and, and this, is, this is such an important principle. Um, I actually I ran into this this week, even in, even in the biggest categories of salvation. Just, we'll just take the big category of salvation, just as an example. Um, we, we can read in places like 1 Peter chapter 3, things like, baptism now saves you. Okay, and if I just had 1 Peter chapter 3, I might think, well, well, well the, the way I get saved is I get baptized, and by doing that, then I can come to God with my certificate, and I can say, see, I got baptized, now you must save me. Or you have the same kind of thing in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says to Timothy, who's the pastor of Ephesus, he says um, uh, so, something to the effect of it, if you, if you watch your life and doctrine closely, for in so doing, you will save, it's a salvation word, save both yourself and your hearers. So if we just had that passage, we might think, you know, if the pastor fouls out, if he's not doing his job, no, nobody who's listening to him or being ministered by him is is going to be saved. But of course, we never think that because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And the, the, the line all through Scripture is salvation belongs to the Lord. So we know in those cases that there's nuances that need to be understood. These are not efficacious in terms of bringing us to a place of salvation. These are merely aspects that God will work through in different ways and in different forms. But we know that because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so, we come to a passage like this this morning, and we want to, we want to do the same thing. Um, we want to take this, these instances and, and make sure we understand them well from, from the rest of the Bible's context. Um, so, first of all, what let's do is let's define the word that's used here. Uh, the Hebrew word that's used, with, with we have translated as, as regret or to change, change his mind. It basically just means to go in the other direction from which you're going. So to speak really woodenly, it means to do an about-face. I'm facing one way, I'm going to start facing the other way. So sometimes it's translated in the Old Testament as repent for that reason. Of course, we know the Lord doesn't repent of sin. So, so it's got a broad uh, semantic usage. Um, it means to do an about-face, which is why the CSB says change his mind. is trying to communicate that to us. We're going one way, we, he's going to go in another way now. Um, it's a word that means to act or move in the opposite direction. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 24... Uh, we read that Isaac was comforted after his mother's after the death of his mother when he took Rebekah as his wife. And that word comforted there is, is actually our word. It means that Isaac turned around, if you like, from a place of grief over his mother's passing to a place of peace as he, as he took an, an, as he had this new wife who was wonderful and he was excited about it and all of these things. There's this about face, an emotional in this case, an emotional about face uh, that took place. So, so the word has, uh, this meaning of, of going in the opposite direction. And we see this word being applied to the Lord a number of times in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, it actually occurs 29 times uh, in the Old Testament. And there are a number of instances in which the Lord seems to be acting in one particular direction, and then He, and then he turns around and He does go the other way. So, so, for example, we have this in the book of Jonah. Uh, we, we know that the people of Nineveh were extremely wicked, and the Lord said that He's going to judge them, but He sends them, Jonah the, the prophet, to preach to them, and they respond in repentance. And then in Jonah 3, verse 10, we read, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God, in this case, relented, that's the same word, God turned around and went in the other direction from the disaster that He had threatened them with, and He did not do it. That's what the text says. God, God relents. In this case, the Lord was going in one direction, and He turned around. He didn't bring judgment upon Nineveh because they repented. We have the same thing showing up in places like Jeremiah 18, uh, where the Lord uh, announces that, that at one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent, there's our word, I'll go in the other direction, concerning the disaster I had planned to do to it. And the Lord goes on. At another time, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and plant it. However, if it does what is evil in my sight by not listening to me, I will relent, I'll turn around and go the other direction, concerning the good that I said I would do to it. So, So we have these cases of the Lord speaking about going in one direction, and then because of human action, response, whatever it may be, He then says He's going to go in the opposite direction. of the way he was was going. He changes from going one way or acting in one way to acting in another. Now think think about our passage. The Lord made Saul king. We know that. Saul's job as king was made clear to him by God's prophet Samuel. Saul's task was to obey the Lord's word, and yet Saul doesn't do it. Saul acts in ways here throughout the storyline, but here specifically in chapter 15, he acts in ways that are climactically disobedient to God's word. And so what does God say? Well, God says, to put it woodenly, I turn back from making Saul king. I made him king, he disobeyed, and now I am going in the other direction. God acts in this sense in response to the actions of Saul. The Lord is turning back from making Saul king, the Lord is rejecting Saul, and in the next chapter we have have David being anointed instead. So, So what does this tell us? Well, well, we understand from these kinds of passages that the Lord interacts with His created order in a dynamically relational manner. Uh, even the usage of, of this word, is, is re- there's regularly an, an element of, of emotion involved. We have it in Genesis 6 where the Lord is, is grieved that He made humanity and there's sorrow reflected in that. You have it here where Samuel is angry after the Lord speaks this way and then Samuel mourns later. There's emotion involved in all of this, but we see that the Lord interacts with His created order in this dynamically relational manner, or, or to put it more theologically, uh, the- theologians will speak of the Lord standing in vital association with the world. Vital association. When when people of Nineveh, for example, repent, instead of planned and proclaimed judgment, the Lord turns from doing that. When, when Saul the king disobeys the Lord, the Lord turns from having Saul as king and will have Samuel anoint somebody else as king. Right? The Lord stands in this vital association with the world that he's made. He's, he's relationally engaged in the realness and authenticity of time and human actions and all of those kinds of things, which, which is such a critical thing to be mindful of as we grow in our knowledge of, of God, because this is, this is ultimately what we see play out so gloriously in the incarnation of God the Son, in Jesus' own coming. The, the Lord, in all His transcendent glory, as one scholar put it, He's not a block of wood or a stone wall. That's not who He is. The Lord is the one who is imminent and, in, and is intimately involved in the reality of our lives. So, so Jesus comes, God the Son, taking humanity to Himself. He comes and, and He interacts and reacts to the circumstances of our world. So God the Son weeps at the tomb of a friend. Or God the Son joins and even promotes the festivities of a wedding. God the Son reacts to the Father's plea for His daughter who's sick. God the Son is enraged by the Pharisees' hypocrisy. The Lord is in, is in vital association with the world He made. The climax of that reality is the incarnation. It's in the person of Jesus that we see that so gloriously. And, and, and in our day-to-day life under God, this is very important that we're, that we're mindful of this because even as we think about things like our own sin, here we have a lot about Saul's sin in this passage, but even as we think about our own sin, the Apostle Paul can tell us in Ephesians 4, verse 30, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's God, the Holy Spirit, interacting in a vital way in the reality of, his, of, the, life of, his, of the life of His people. I'm going on, and I can, I can glorify God, and, and, and that causes Him to rejoice, the psalmist tells us. But at the same time, I can do things that then cause Him grief, as Paul makes it clear. So, so, so we relate to the Lord as the one who isn't merely transcendent, but He is genuinely intimate with us. And in this sense, His response is affected by our own behavior, thoughts, and decisions. This is, just wait, if you need to wait, you might need to wait a second on this, but this is the witness of Scripture. This is, and, and this can inform our Christian lives. So, so, so we have this in the, with the psalmist all the time. How does the psalmist talk? Psalm 25, for example, turn to me. And be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The psalmist is saying, I have not been experiencing the comforting presence of you in my loneliness, and I would really like for you to exercise yourself in, in, in establishing your comforting presence in the immediacy of the sorrow that I'm facing. And of course, the psalmist rejoices because God does do that. He turns to the, to the, to the person in need, and He brings them unique comfort. So we have this dynamic reality of God's interaction with us. And an interaction with the, with the world he made. And here in our passage, we see that play out in the Lord's relationship with Israel's first king. The, the word regret, uh, that can actually be a bit misleading in our translation since it seems like a, a merely emotional word. Um, the, the concept isn't less than emotion, but, but it is more than that. The, the Lord turns back, clearly grieved, but he turns back from making Saul king. Um, and and divinely sanctions that that Saul's not going to be Israel's king anymore. It's it's a relational connection that the Lord is responding to, if you like, there. So so that's one way we understand the Lord's turning around in this passage and in other passages. The Lord exists, and again, I'm borrowing Bovink's language here. He's very helpful on these things. He speaks of, of God being in vital association with the world that he made. Now, the question immediately follows... Does this mean that the Lord moves in a way that is ultimately, hear each of these words, that is ultimately contingent or dependent upon His created order? Does this mean that the Lord moves in a way that is ultimately contingent or dependent on our actions as humanity? And then there are those who would answer that question and say yes, it does mean that. In fact, as, as far as the, as the far end of the yes spectrum goes, we have scholars making comments regarding this passage. One in particular, he says, common sense tells us that we can only regret or turn back from a decision we made if the decision resulted in an outcome other than what we expected. He's saying common sense. That, that, that particular theologian, he extrapolates from there to say that the Lord doesn't really know what will ultimately happen in the world, now, now the Lord's wise, he can make good guesses, and he has, you know, a, a great deal of power to affect things and so on, but some things can catch him off guard, like maybe Saul's failure as king, though we have to think, who didn't see that coming, right? But maybe Saul caught him off guard, so, so the Lord has to backtrack. The Lord's actions, some would say, are ultimately contingent upon what humans do. So we ask ourselves, is that what the Scriptures teach us about God? Now, if we just had 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11, we might say, Yes. But because we have the rest of Scripture and because we have the whole Bible, we must ultimately say a very emphatic no. Right? The Lord and what He does or does not do, and in, in that, He is not ultimately contingent on anyone or anything ever. Which we start to see when we look at what Samuel says down in verse 29. So take a look at verse 29. Uh, Samuel's gone to Saul. And he's told Saul that because of Saul's disobedience, the Lord is tearing the kingdom away from Saul and giving it to another. And then Samuel lays down this really big truth about God in verse 29. The eternal one of Israel, he says, does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. Okay, so now we need, we need to sort this out. On, on the one hand, part of this statement is very straightforward. Samuel just says the Lord does not lie. And in the context, he's telling Saul that, that the Lord has not been deceitful, making Saul king to begin with, and the Lord is being absolutely truthful when He tells Saul that the kingdom will be taken from him. Now, Saul won't want to believe that, as we'll see as the chapters unfold, but but that that truth is plain, and it does play out. The Lord doesn't lie. If He says He's taking the kingdom away from you, Saul, He's taking the kingdom away from you. That's going to happen. And then we have this next statement, where the Lord does not change His mind. And there, there we have our word again. In other words, the Lord does not turn in the opposite direction of where, of where He's going or what He's doing, if we can put it that way. So does the Lord, or does the Lord not, do this? Right. Well we come back to, to, what, to what we've talked about from the beginning. Our main principle of interpreting the Bible is to make sure we're interpreting Scripture with Scripture, right? And just as there are incidents in Scripture of the Lord relenting and and going in another direction, like in Jonah, which we talked about, we, we also have statements along these lines, like what we have here in Numbers 23, where we're told there something very similar to what Samuel says here. He says in Numbers 23, God is not man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. There's our word. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? In other words, what God determines will be will be exactly what he does, full stop. And and so here we see another category of the nature of God is also being presented to us. Samuel is making the point to Saul that, that God's purposes, in an ultimate sense, always stand, and he's the God who does not change in these things, which again is the witness of Scripture. When we start to think through the Bible, we understand, we start to see that, that it is full of this kind of truth about God. The Scriptures constantly witness to the fact of God's absolute power and authority and knowledge with regard to everything from the personal circumstances of life to the events of history comprehensively. So take Isaiah 46, for example. Isaiah 46, the Lord says, I am God and no one is like me. Okay? I declare the end from the beginning, and from long ago, what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. So, so ju- just hear that. This is the Lord who doesn't just know the future. That'd be one thing. He actually decrees the future. All right? Or take Psalm 33 where we have the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. God's plans never falter. Or Deuteronomy 32, listen to this. He says, see how I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. So, so, so no one is powerful enough to change the course of God's purposes. Or Isaiah, Isaiah 43, just very straightforward. The Lord says, I work, who can turn it back? I'm going to do stuff. Just to put it as clearly as possible, I do stuff, and no one can stop me or change it. Christ personifies this in His earthly ministry, doesn't He? Where Jesus speaks and a storm is calmed, or or Jesus speaks and dead Lazarus walks out of the tomb, totally sovereign in what He determines to do, whether it's it's the wind dying or the dead rising. The, The Apostle Paul tells us that the Lord works all things, According to the counsel of his will, David says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And then he goes even further to say, all my days were ordained for me before as yet one of them came to be, in Psalm 139. Lord allotted all my days. Solomon says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purposes of the Lord that will stand. I mean, we could just keep going like this, right? (laughs) The future is never an unknown to the Lord. The future is never something that sneaks up on the Lord and surprises Him with a, with a change. He's not, on the one hand, strong enough to deal with, but quite the opposite. The Lord is all-knowing with regard to the future. In fact, He's all-powerful over the totality of events that take place from eternity to eternity. And it's not just that He knows them, but it's that they happen by His decree. Nebuchadnezzar, he finally recognizes this in Daniel chapter 4 after he's been humbled and he says, The Lord does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand and say to him, What have you done? So, so, so the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God of salvation, this is the Lord of absolute dominion and sovereignty. From feeding the birds of the air, to standing over and above the rise and fall of nations, to numbering the very hairs on our head, to purposes such as placing and then removing Saul as king over Israel. God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all decreeing master of the universe. That's the witness of Scripture. And so here we are, kind of as, as two-year-olds on the end of the street, facing what seems to be a bit of a contradiction, aren't we? Like a two-year-old who can't understand why the road keeps going, but I need to stop walking. We get up against this and we find ourselves in Bavinck's category facing, facing something of the ultimate incomprehensibility of God. This is, this is where what's, what's apparently a contradiction is presented to us in Scripture as a matter of complete continuity in the personhood of God. These two things stand throughout Scripture as, as absolute eternal truth. The Lord is in vital association with His created order. So he relationally engages with the world he made. He entered into into space and time. He acts, he responds to us and so on. But number two, he does so in a way that never mitigates his absolute sovereignty and decreeing power over the entirety of time and space and all that ever takes place. Which is exactly what Samuel is pointing us toward when when he includes that caveat there in verse 29 where he doesn't just say the Lord doesn't change his mind. He says the Lord doesn't change his mind for he's not like man who changes his mind. In other words, there's a categorical difference when we think about this and, and, and start to apply it to the personhood of God. When, when we read the, the scriptures or even experience in our own lives of faith situations where it seems as though the Lord is, is changing in his posture toward us, that change is not a change in, in the way we as humans think about change. Because because how do we change? Or maybe it would be better to say why why do we go from one direction and turn around and go back the other way? as humans. Well, we do that because we don't know all things, for one. We don't, we don't know the, the outcome of things. We, we do that because we aren't all powerful. We don't decree what the future holds, so, so we have to adjust. But, but in, in the biggest way, we face things that come, and we, in our humanity, change or regret or relent because we had to say, had I known, I would have done something different. But you see, that's not how God changes. God's changes are to be understood. His, his changes are in genuine and vital association with the world he made at one level, but at another incomprehensible level. All things are being worked according to his ultimate purposes. There is no change. There are no surprises. He has already decreed the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46, verse 10. Not, not in a way that undoes our human responsibility or the authenticity of, of his relational engagement with us and our agency. But this fact remains, He is the beginning and the end. He's the one whose purposes never fail and who rules over all things in perfect, sovereign wisdom and purpose. So God responds to us. That's an amazing truth. And God moves exactly according to the plans He decreed from before the foundations of the world and never changes. Both of those truths are upheld with unapologetic absoluteness in the Bible. And so so what do we say to that? Do we say, I can't trust the Lord because He's bigger than my logic can comprehend? No. We say the exact opposite. we confess, you, O Lord, wouldn't be God if I could comprehend you in your totality. I can't understand my wife in her totality, let alone comprehend the vastness of God. Who do I think I am? All right? How in the world would I expect to comprehend the full intricacies of the master of the universe and his eternal almighty ways? I can't understand the Lord exhaustively, but I can know him. We can know him and his ways, and they can ultimately draw us out in worship and in trust. There's no wonder in the beginning of the book of Revelation, at the, at the beginning of that apocalyptic pulling back of the curtain of history, as we gaze into the spiritual realm, at the beginning of all that, Jesus speaks to the apostle John, and you remember what he says? Don't be afraid why i am the first and i'm the last total and complete overarching majesty and authority that there is great comfort in knowing that the lord exists in vital association with us we we cry out to him i'm lonely and afflicted turn to me he hears our prayers he acts he brings comfort to us in time, space, history. He comes to us with a measure of new and renewing comfort and all of those graces we know experientially in the Christian life. There's great comfort in the Lord's immediate interaction with us in time, space, history. And, and there is great comfort in knowing that the Lord exists in complete and transcendent sovereignty over all things because that means when I lay my head on the pillow at night, my temporal and my eternal well-being is not sourced in me and my frailty, but in the unchanging, unrelenting, unerring, perfect and powerful will and promise of God. And in that is extraordinary comfort. In that is vastness, more than we can comprehend. But in that is extraordinary comfort, and it's in that that we rest. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that you would bring these comforting truths to our heart in a way that renews us. We know, oh Lord, that you are beyond our comprehension. You're bigger than we could ever entirely understand. But at the same time, you do reveal yourself to us. And you reveal yourself to us in a way that that very much under underpins that exact fact. You are the great God beyond all understanding. But you're also the God who is intimate and who is near. We praise you that you've come near to us in Christ and that we can know you and we can trust you and that you... Uh, help us and bring us comfort, bring us peace, bring us conviction. You're the God who engages with us, and and we praise you for that reality as well. May we know you more. It is our greatest desire to know you. Help us to that end, for Jesus' sake. Amen.